0: Hello and welcome to a million other choices. I'm your host Kim. I changed recording spaces for today, so I'm hoping that it doesn't affect the sound quality too much. Between my washing machine being on and the fact that one of my cats was sitting on my chair, and what kind of animal would I be if I moved a cat? So. Um, I've decided to move into my living room for now, so like I said, hopefully it doesn't affect sound quality for today. But is everybody ready for some more domestic violence and a couple of children left with the horrific scars of trauma? Okay then, let's get on with today's case. This is the murder of Tanya Gordon. Annie Gordon was born to parents Don and Patricia in 1979. I'm not sure where she was born, but as an adult, both her parents and herself were living here in Calgary. She had two sisters, Kim and Don, and she grew up to be a fierce, stubborn, and very bubbly girl with a trademark and very endearing gap-toothed smile. Her father, Don, said that she showed her rebellious streak by refusing to arrive into the world on her mom's birthday, instead marking her own day to celebrate two days later. She moved out when she was only 16, but managed to finish high school, and she had her first child, a son named Austin, at only 19. Her daughter Alyssa followed two years later after she met her common-law husband, Robert Bell. Robert had a son three years older than Austin as well, so the couple settled into domestic life with a blended family of three kids on the southern end of the city in Ogden. And even at 26, Tanya remained very youthful-looking in pictures she could be mistaken for a teenager. Now, I have no idea how the relationship with Robert went. Based on her family's concerns, likely not very well. According to her good friend and neighbor, Nicole Bolduck, Uh, They had talked about marriage, but fights were kind of a regular thing between them but they'd stayed together until October 4th, 2004, and that's when Tanya was physically assaulted by Robert. It was probably not the first time that it had happened, but it was the first time that it turned the tides for Tanya. She filed charges, and then to avoid jail time, Robert agreed to a peace bond, which is essentially like a restraining order, only he agreed to attend counseling and abstain from alcohol and drugs. And because Tanya is a smart cookie, she moved into her own place in the 7,000 block of 24th Street in the southeast with Austin who was six and Alyssa who was four. She also started working two jobs to support her and her kids not wanting to rely on Robert for funding them. One of the jobs she had was at Fabricland which isn't around anymore I, I don't think anyways but it's one of those places for all your sewing needs, bolts of fabric, threads, all kinds of colors and patterns and one of her co-workers Deborah, remembers Tanya very fondly telling Shelly Knapp of the Calgary Herald in September of 2005 that she She was a strong girl who could hoist up these full bolts of fabric and carry them around, once bumping her in the head. So she had nicknamed her Hurricane Gordon. She also said that she had this very breathless way of talking about her kids, which she absolutely lived and breathed for. Her other job was working at a local liquor store. But during the time that Tanya was on her own, Robert still managed to keep tabs on her. In Robert's eyes, they were still a couple, even though they lived in separate places. So every Wednesday and Saturday, Tanya would go to Robert's house and clean and cook for him. Like kind of, It was kind of an odd arrangement, um, but as we've seen a gabillion times, she was probably just trying to keep the peace with him, or it was how they arranged his visitation with Alyssa. It's strange, but who are we to judge her choices? Uh, there, but for the grace of God go I, as I always say. Chances are they were trying to work things out, and as Tanya was likely hoping that the counseling would have done the trick for him, um, but she did tell her mom that she didn't love him anymore, but Robert just, he just simply would not believe her, probably because he figured he could treat her like crap even though he loved her, um, so the fact that she was being nice to him must mean that she loved him but more likely she actually felt pity for him. Um, she also continued to insure and pay for Robert's beat-up old Pontiac Firefly. Most people in Tanya's life knew Robert was controlling and jealous, so her family wasn't exactly thrilled when they went on vacation together to BC in mid-August of 2005. Robert took the opportunity to try to convince Tanya to return to his place with the kids But Tanya took that opportunity to tell him that the relationship was over and that she had actually moved on with a new boyfriend and she was happy. Robert didn't take too well to being told that he was being usurped by a better man with better prospects and more self-respect and respect for Tanya. So he started to harass and stalk her relentlessly for the next couple of weeks. And when she threatened to call the cops, then he would threaten to take her kids from her. And these tactics work, like take it from me, someone that knows most of us will do anything to protect and keep our kids close, including enduring stalking and harassment. The family was concerned for Tanya's safety, but there was really little that they could do. On the night of Tuesday, August 30th, 2005, so two weeks after she had returned from BC, and after two weeks of enduring Robert's stalking and threats, she made plans to meet her new boyfriend, her sister, and her aunt for chicken wings after she finished up work that night at the liquor store, which was around 8 p.m. But when she didn't show up, her family went into immediate panic, knowing something wasn't right. And so just after midnight, they showed up in her neighborhood searching for her. There was a guy that was just finishing up a drywall job in a vacant unit, just a couple doors down, but he hadn't heard anything and hadn't seen Tanya that day. And then they asked Nicole, but she hadn't seen Tanya in a couple of days. Now this family doesn't play. Sandy, Tanya's aunt, crawled her way into Tanya's basement window. There was not going to be any waiting on welfare checks and, you know, she'll show up for this family. They just had a gut feeling. So Sandy was... She was pretty much steeled for what she was going to find, but there is no gut feeling that could truly prepare her for the horror of finding Tanya's body splayed on her back on her bed in her bedroom, lifeless, gray, and not moving, an image that still lives in Sandy's head to this day, and Tanya was only 26 years old. To add to the horror of the worst day of Sandy, Kim, Don, Donald's, and Patricia's life, Austin and Alyssa were nowhere to be found. Neither was Robert. A large-scale manhunt was immediately started for Robert, and the city was scoured for any trace of Austin and Alyssa. And they were on the verge of issuing an Amber Alert to try and locate the children, but Staff Sergeant Barry Cochran said, We have no indication to believe at this point that the nine-year-old child has been abducted or that the child has been harmed. But at about 2.30 in the afternoon, thankfully, they were located at the South Centre Mall, unharmed, but terrified and traumatized. They had been dumped there by Robert, who then took off in his rust-bucket Pontiac with his nine-year-old son, Michael, to whereabouts unknown. A Canada-wide arrest warrant was issued for Robert Bell, who was still considered only officially a person of interest. But after an interview with Austin, quickly had become suspect number one. Austin who was home with his little sister Alyssa and his mom on Tuesday afternoon saw his dad come in and Tanya and him had started to argue in Tanya's bedroom and little Austin peeked his head into the room to see what all the commotion was about and saw Robert sitting on top of his mom on her bed straddling her. Tanya cried out to Austin to call 911 but Robert the evil piece of garbage he is told Austin no, don't, you're going to get me in trouble. Now, this probably came with with a pretty menacing and threatening expression because Austin just crept back into his bedroom where he heard his mom cry, let me go, and then what he describes as an ugh sound, and then the sound of deadness. Like, Can you imagine the trauma of that? I certainly can't, and we're going to go back and talk about that a little bit later. Tanya's autopsy confirmed what Austin had said, Her body had three deep bruises to her face and head, consistent with being punched, and the punches wouldn't have caused any internal hemorrhaging, but would have left her pretty stunned. Her cause of death was a combination of strangulation and smothering. Fortunately, on the Friday, a very astute motorist recognized Robert's Firefly heading east on the Trans-Canada Highway just outside of Moose Jaw, which I will tell you again is a real place. His father lived in Regina. So investigators figured he was on his way there. Michael, his biological son was with him in the passenger seat uh, when he was stopped by the police and arrested without any incident. Michael was taken into the care of a social worker and I wasn't able to find any information on his biological mom. And if he was eventually returned reunited with her or if she was in the picture to begin with. So I'm not able to tell you what became of Michael, Hopefully good things, but probably not. And again, we'll come back to this a little bit later. Robert was returned to Calgary and charged with second degree murder. Now, initially, Robert claimed no responsibility for Tanya's murder, but he eventually relented and said that he had blacked out in a rage and lost control in an argument that he says just went too far over Tanya's supposed adulterous behavior. Leona Bennett, who is Robert's stepmother, released a statement on behalf of his family to the media offering condolences to Tanya's family and friends. On behalf of the entire Bell family, we would like to offer our sincere condolences to the Gordon family in this terrible tragedy. We do not condone the act that was committed and we would never wish this to happen to anyone. We are very thankful for the safe return of all the children and ask that you please respect the privacy of the Gordon and Bell families at this difficult time. And they had actually been unsure how to approach the Gordon family with those condolences uh, because they did want to be very respectful. But Don appreciated their words. He didn't hold any grudges against them. And Leona had said at the time, we don't know what happened or why. His trial was scheduled for March 12, 2007, so two years after Tanya's murder, but of course was delayed, while his defense lawyer, Adriano Lovinelli, worked with Mac Vomberg of the Crown Prosecutor's Office to work out a deal to avoid a trial. In the end, in April 2007, Robert decided to plead guilty to second-degree murder. His lawyer, Adriano, said that part of the reason that he pled guilty was to spare his children – Um, He said, quote, the accused did not want to have the children involved in the court proceedings from day one, to which Patricia Gordon said he only used the kids as a ploy because he knew it worked in his favor. He knew right from the start we would never have let the kids take the stand ever. Tanya's aunt and the one scarred by, by having to find her, Sandy, said that they were just glad that, the fam- that he had finally admitted what he had done, but said it was too little too late and that he should have just admitted it when he was arrested and saved us all a lot of grief. Patricia concurred that she was glad that he had decided to plead guilty, but it was so late in the game that it was irritating, adding, I'm glad it's over and we can all get on with our lives. But 10 years from now, we know we've got a red flag to come back. Uh, She was speaking about the possibility of parole hearings, which is something a lot of people don't consider when they hear sentences. You know, years go by and people do get out. Don Gordon, Tanya's dad, said the guilty plea was good not to have to see his grandchildren marched into court and further traumatized by testifying against their own father. But the fact that he had tried to use his children to reduce his sentence was, in his words, garbage. The judge, Beth Hughes, when handing down her sentence said, the effect on the children who were present when a parent is murdered by a significant other is that they face major hurdles. The family life they knew is completely destroyed. They have no mother and essentially no father. And there were more than a dozen aggravating factors, including that the children were home at the time and that he was under a peace bond. Uh, But his parole and eligibility period was set at 12 years. However, of course, second degree murder comes with a life sentence, but very few of them actually die in prison. Most are later paroled. Before the sentence had been handed down Patricia told reporters that she had been hoping for 15 to 18 years saying 10 or 12 years is a slap against her honor and won't cut it. The crown prosecutor Mark Volenberg said the court recognized that had it gone to trial the sentence would have been higher but at a cost to the children. How much danger to the children for a stiffer penalty everybody loses it's a terrible trade-off. Now, I kind of call BS on that because I think it's just easier not to go to trial for lawyers and judges, but whatever. Robert's lawyer said, that's part of the compromise for forgoing a trial, making a prompt guilty plea without the children having to testify and getting 12 years before parole. But would they really have needed the children to testify anyways? I mean, Alyssa was only four years old at the time, so I don't think she would have been a part of any court proceedings. And a six-year-old isn't really considered a reliable witness at least in a court not in a courtroom setting anyways so i still call bs on that
1: i will be right back after these brief messages
0: When asked if he had anything to say, Robert stood, stared straight ahead, did not acknowledge the family in any way and said, I know I hurt a lot of people. Not a day goes by that I don't think about what I've done. I'm truly sorry. But Patricia said, what he said there, I can't even take it to heart. He can say what he wants. Don said that it was all he could do to hold himself back in the courtroom saying, I'm glad he admitted to it, but it was difficult sitting that close to him without going over to him. It was hard. I wanted to bail that rail. I'd have done it. But what's the sense? I'd be in jail too. On December 30th, 2015, he applied for day parole, which is only 10 years after the murder and not the 12. But day parole is not the same as full parole. So when they say not eligible for parole, for parole for X number of years, they're talking about full parole. Day parole, you can still apply for, and I think it's only 10 years after a murder conviction, uh, even if it's first degree, which is an automatic 25-year ineligibility period for full parole. The only real difference between day parole and full parole is that you have to live in a halfway house and are somewhat supervised. So it's not really a huge difference to family members struggling to put their lives back together after being torn asunder by these asshats. But fortunately, he was denied. The parole board stating the family and friends of your victims speak of having their heart ripped out of their chest, that they will never see their daughter, sister or friend again. They express their grief on behalf of the victim's children who will never have their mother witness the meaningful landmarks in their life, which I guess is some condolence that they at least read the victim impact statements when they apply for parole. They further stated, in your version of events, you claim that the victim was cheating on you and during an argument, you blacked out, lost control, and the argument went too far. The board challenged you on your continuous invasive efforts to keep your victim in the relationship despite her obvious disengagement. Problems with impulse control and stress management, as well as jealousy and anger management, have been noted in the past and may need to be further addressed. Then, on September 8th, 2017, so not quite two years later, the parole board changed their tune, and were suddenly super impressed with Mr. Bell granting him day parole and assessing him now as a low risk to public safety, writing in their decision this time that the plan to have him live in a halfway house was realistic and viable a structured term of day parole as proposed will assist in your reintegration. In addition to taking a life, your actions also seriously and profoundly affected others. Victim impact statements from on file from 2006 and 2016 express the grief, loss and ongoing hardship of family members. They also have expressed opposition to your release from prison. I, I hate it when they write that stuff, but they still grant parole. Like, don't even talk about the victim's families if you just don't really care about their feelings. Anyways, Robert became eligible for full parole that same year, but I haven't heard if he was granted and where he is at this time. It's probably out and about living with a woman near you. And that was the murder of Tanya Gordon. Now, here is the issue of the day that I want to talk about. My sister did this podcast on her Nomina Mental, Mavens, uh, Mental Health Mavens podcast, and she interviewed a forensic psychologist. I, I think I've mentioned it before, uh, but I've been thinking a lot about it when writing cases lately. And she said something that up until then I hadn't done a lot of thinking about, and that's that trauma changes your brain. I've also often thought that if we could just stop traumatizing children, so many homicides would be prevented in the future. So science has figured out that trauma in childhood affects the building of neuropathways in the brain, particularly in the areas of dealing with stress the amygdala, hippocampus and prefrontal cortex. And this creates essentially a weakness in those pathways, making the person less able to deal with and cope with challenging situations. And really, it comes down to the decisions that get made under stressful situations or during conflict. A person who has undergone trauma, particularly in childhood, when those pathways are forming, doesn't have the same brain strength, which is completely separate from intelligence. So don't think that I'm saying it makes you not smart, but less To make thoughtful choices. So, I think that logically, we all kind of know that about childhood trauma. Trauma and adulthood is much the same, but at least in those situations, the pathways are already there. They're damaged and bent, but essentially still there. But a child that witnesses or has one parent take the life of another parent is a unique trauma that has actually been studied. And so actually, if you have access to the Journal of the American Academy of Child Psychiatry, there's a study published in there by Dr. Carl Malmquist, uh, where he studied 16 children between the ages of five and 10 that witnessed parental murder. Uh, He also studied the unique comorbid traumas of court involvement and exposure to the parent that did the murder. Anyways, believe it or not, familiar homicide affects about three children each week and about 150 kids lose one parent at the hands of the other each year. And doctors Barbara Parker and Richard Steves, who are researchers from the University of Virginia's School of Nursing, studied adults who had lived through the homicide of one parent by the other. And they interviewed 86 adults and found that the majority of them had been told to move on and were actively discouraged from talking about it. So they're added to the mix. Of course, they have feelings of guilt, anxiety, and shame. And one person interviewed said, I didn't want to burden my grandparents who had lost a daughter and were traumatized. I knew they were drinking and taking Valium. I couldn't talk about how worried I was about my dad and my fear that he would commit suicide because they said they would just never forgive him for what he had done. Now, this particular victim actually went on to return to live with her dad after he was released from prison, but she also grew up feeling extremely isolated because she didn't have any exposure to anyone that had been through what she'd been through. Now, interestingly... Um, The findings are that often kids who have been through domestic homicide are actually not always better placed with other family members. Like family members of the victim might be bitter and traumatized themselves and the other family might be too sympathetic towards the perpetrator. I thought that was just an interesting little side note there. Anyways, Noor Nass's father killed her mom, and she guest wrote on the HuffPost, and I just want to share some of her story with you. So this is a quote directly from um, the article that she wrote for. I intimately recall the day my mother died. I am held captive by the memory of my father's gun no longer firing and him casually walking away from her body. I wondered if he stopped shooting because there was just no more bullets left or if maybe he had finally had enough. I ran away from the alley, but I didn't know where I was going. I ran to the street and stopped two cars on the road. I had forgotten how to speak. A woman tried calming me down until the police found me with her and took me back to the shop. The ambulance came for my mama's body and for my father. And when the police interviewed me at the station later that evening, they told me my father had been fatally shot by the responding officer after my father aimed his gun at him. I sat there in front of three officers, as angry as I had ever been. I need him alive, I thought. My rage needed its source. It needed my father. It was difficult handling a host of emotions that I had never felt before. It was like welcoming a new person into my body. When people ask me how I managed, I tell them there were times I don't think I ever really managed at all. I dropped out of college, I lost my job, I moved around a lot, I tried medication, I tried therapy, and when nothing seemed to work in the way I needed it to, I became extremely desperate for peace. I stopped eating." Days would pass, but I would never feel hungry. Even drinking water became an impossible task. I was convinced that my grief had a life of its own, that it was growing through my anguish, and that it was stronger than the person underneath it all. I tried bargaining with God to bring my mother back. Late at night, I would walk down the alley where she was killed and replay the incident inside my head. I would drive my car around Vel- Velio every night for months until the sun came up because my grief made me delusional enough to believe that if I just looked hard enough, I would find her again. For the first few years after Mama was killed, I was extremely apprehensive about talking about what had happened. I felt like I was always under a microscope and that this experience would color the way people spoke and interacted with me. The first time I confided in someone, they told me what my father did was a crime of passion and tried to assure me that he only killed her because he loved her. The next time I was asked if he was drunk when he did what he did. People would ask me personal questions about what I saw and ask me other things that I couldn't possibly answer, like what his motive was on that day. And some wondered what mama had done to make him so angry. These responses pressured me into silence. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to try and explain what childhood trauma is actually like, but I've never actually been through it. I had a pretty, quote, normal childhood. I mean, I've definitely been through trauma, but I wouldn't say as a child. So if I haven't experienced something, I don't want to pretend like I really know anything about it. So I did find this TED Talk that was done by Dani Bostic. Uh Now, she suffered sexual abuse trauma as a child, and she can put into words a lot better than I can what childhood trauma actually manifests like. Uh, and I just want to leave you with her thoughts on it.
2: That's me. I was uh, enrolled in gymnastics. That's right around the time I discovered... I wasn't very good at gymnastics, because Dominique Dawes signed up for my class. And in hindsight, maybe I could have been okay ish at gymnastics. But at that time, I was like, you know what? This just isn't for me. So I started taking swim lessons, and I joined a swim team. And that's when my trauma began, because my swim coach was a predator and he sexually abused me for five years from the age of seven to around 12. So lots of people think that PTSD is just for veterans, but it can affect children too, just like it affected me. And I'm not alone in my experience at all. One in eight children suffers enough trauma to have long-lasting negative effects in terms of both mental health and physical health well into adulthood. And these 1 in 8 children can expect to experience a lifespan that is 20 years shorter than their peers. And the fact is that combat is not the only type of trauma. Child sexual abuse is not the only type of trauma. It could be a car accident, a serious illness, witnessing a death, some type of other kind of violence. Living in poverty can be a type of trauma. The stakes are extremely high for children because trauma can change the architecture of the developing brain. It's not as simple as having a bad memory of something disturbing. It's not as simple as having a nightmare. It pervades every aspect of your life, from relationships to your sense of time. When you re-experience the trauma, you're thinking, what year is it? And if you think about children, they're the most disenfranchised group In our country and in the world, we like to think children are okay. We want to look at them and say, if they look okay, they must be okay. But sometimes children aren't. Seneca, the ancient Roman philosopher, whom I've loved, I've always loved him. I'm a Latin teacher now. I had a stint as a mental health counselor, and now I teach Latin. But Seneca was suffering from a really, really severe illness. And he wrote, sometimes just living is an act of bravery. And that's the case for children and anybody suffering from trauma. What do we know about a child who's experiencing PTSD? Probably not very much. And that's dangerous, because these children will grow up hurting. And these children will experience higher rates of suicidality, higher rates of eating disorder, higher rates of obesity, Dysfunctional relationships, higher rates of addiction. So what can we do? We obviously can't control the weather if it's a natural disaster that's a source of the trauma. We can't stop all crime. But there are some things that we can do to make our communities and our schools and the places where our children spend the most time friendlier and safer for them. The first is simply to disseminate information. So when I had my children, I have four, I had the first, my first child, I knew when I brought her home she was going to cry all the time. I knew she wasn't going to smile and talk right away. There's lots of things I knew. When I get a runny nose, I don't think my brain is coming out. I understand what that's all about. Information helps. It helps people make sense of the world and it helps people understand how to react to certain situations. So we need to make sure that information about childhood trauma isn't relegated to universities. And certainly that's not relegated to some gimmick of the month that's going to be popular before the next acronym comes out. We need a sustained commitment to spreading accurate information about childhood trauma. The second thing we can do is to share our stories. I share my story so that others will share theirs. And since I've started sharing, I've met a lot of people who've experienced the same thing as me. And I wish I had that as a child. I did not know anybody who was like me as a child. In fact, I didn't know anybody like me until I named myself as Victim A in the case against my perpetrator. The third thing we can do is to be an ally. This is my seventh grade social studies teacher. She came to the sentencing of my perpetrator in 2014. And she was there not just to support me as an adult, but to support that 11-year-old girl who sat in her class. And she supported me then. She supported me by making me feel important. She supported me by telling me my work was good. And she supported me by caring and providing a safe, secure environment. And she did that for me at my perpetrator's sentencing. So the third thing we can do is be real allies to children. Not be afraid of them, not other them, not keep them at arm's length, but make them feel heard and seen and understood. I've had a good life, and all children with trauma deserve that chance, and together we can make that happen.
0: Thank you so much for listening, and I will be back again next week.